This week on TechNado, we have an interview with private equity investor Marco Rubin. We're also going to learn about how 5G is going to kill everybody and Mona Lisa comes to life. That's all coming up on TechNado, starting right now. Welcome to TechNado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I'm joined this week, as always, by Don Pizzette and Justin Dennison. How are you doing, gentlemen? Doing fairly well. I got my coffee, ready to, ready to talk about some news. And an interview. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking uh, actually with a venture capitalist today, which normally we wouldn't do, but he's backed a lot of pretty cool tech, a lot of uh, you know drones and... Uh, oh, Right <laughs> you just so if you're playing buzzword bingo, we start early here. Check your buzzword bingo card for the word drone. Uh, if you don't have a buzzword bingo card, where can they get up here? Uh, they can go to go.itpro.tv slash buzzword dash bingo uh, and get one of those. And uh, yeah, I don't have drone yet because I said it, but they get to mark off drone. <laughs> um, but you at home, you all get to mark off drone if it is on your card. No holds barred. Um, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll be talking in a little bit with Marco Rubin, who's a senior investment coordinator or se- senior investment director for the Center for Innovative Technology uh, up in Justin's old stomping grounds of Virginia. So we'll ask him all about that. Yeah, it. it I mean, I never thought we would say that on this podcast. Uh, oh, we'll ask about Virginia. But there we yeah. are. We What's have up it. with Virginia? Uh, we should that, put that on the bingo question. That's, that's the first question. <laughs> What's up with Virginia? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's talk about some news because we definitely have some uh, interesting stuff that happened this week. Uh, we're going to start over at CNBC.com. Uh, Equifax just became the first company to have its outlook downgraded for a cyber attack. And so, I mean, this is we're still talking about that attack from back in 2017 and still having – um, significant ramifications for them beyond just uh, you know all the potential customers that they lost, I guess. Yeah, and and where this is significant is actually not so much the outlook downgrade, but that this is really the first punishment or, or negative action we've seen against Equifax. Like Equifax had a huge breach that lasted a significant amount of time, and the data of hundreds of millions of people was released. And and I'm not talking about first name, last name, and email address. You know, this was social security number, date of birth, all sorts of stuff was was leaked out. Uh, nobody's gone to jail. No, I, I don't even think a fine has been assessed yet, although they've talked about it. Uh, Equifax has actually ended up better off because now they're selling identity protection, <laughs> which is like the biggest con. Like, it, it's not even a long con. Like, this yeah. is just blatant in your face. Like, Here, it's time to rip you off. Your stuff might be on the dark web because we put it there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there's several things that, that still blow my mind about this. I, I don't. I haven't looked back up. There was one individual who didn't want to play ball because they were like, hey, if you just play ball and tell us what happened, then we won't get you for insider trading because they were like shucking off shares and stuff. <laughs> Smart. And he was like, no. I'm suspect that he ended up because uh, maybe federal prison time or whatever that was going to be. That seems nice though. It, from what it I've was heard. there, wasn't it? Their CTO where he sold off a bunch of stocks prior to the announcement oh, right. about the yeah, breach. Yeah, that was back. Yeah, yeah I don't know what happened with him. Well, now I'm curious. So you said there were no fines. This this says uh, they cited Equifax's recent 690 million dollar first quarter charge for the breach. As oh, so they did con- actually get hit, contributing to the downgrade. So. Hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, the the details of that specifically, but I was thinking about the other day. I was like, well, what if this if this had happened in Europe, it, in a post GDPR time? I mean, we'd be looking at 
well, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in fines. Oh, yeah. They actually say right here, a little bit after that, um, the expense represents the company's estimate for settling ongoing class action cases. So okay. so the, they haven't actually paid this out yet, but they're estimating that that's what it could be. Now, the reality is class action cases can take decades to close. Yeah. And by the time it does close, that $690 million will probably reduce significantly. And, you know, and everyone will get a check for three dollars and fourteen cents. No, oh, nobody's fine. getting a check. Well, I mean, the lawyers will get a check, yeah. and maybe the government, but no, no regular people will get a check yeah. out of well, this. I've gotten those checks before, before in a couple of things where it's like, oh, you were an AT and T customer, and they did this and that, and so here's your check, and it's like a dollar twenty seven. Okay, thank you. You know. So there was okay. one. It was not. It was a class action suit about uh, bad employment practices. I actually got a check for like a thousand dollars from a previous job, and I was like, I haven't worked there in like two years. But they were doing things like shucking and jiving on the commission structure and then not paying people. And then, yeah, the, the Board of Labor hmm. stuff stepped in. I was like, yeah, can't do that. Yeah, it's trying uh, to find Interesting it. thing about the credit reporting services, right? The We're watching you, like helping you keep that stuff. Other services that are appear to be third parties, that was a service that Equifax sold to those third parties. Because there were so many people, I remember right after the breach, saying, oh, I'm going to switch to this now, or I'm going to go over that. And yeah. it's like... That's still Equifax, or yeah. they get the reporting from Equifax, or yeah. you know, this is this is like when you pull into the parking garage and a CD like homeless person walks up to you and says, "Man, it it'd be terrible if something bad happened to your car while you were in there. I, I'll watch it for you for five bucks." Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that's what Equifax is, like uh, a, yep. on a corporate scale. <laughs> I just I'm. In my mind, there's like an anthropomorphized Equifax and like a bad <laughs> trench coat just walking up to you. It'd be real horrible if things ended up on the dark web. I'll watch them for you if you yeah. want me to. And I'll put them there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, yeah, that, that's the, the problem with the analogy here is something actually happened to your car and you still oh, gave okay, the guy Okay, so if bucks. we go with Don's analogy, he set your car on fire. Yeah. With your five dollars, yeah, there with you your go. five dollars, yeah, so, and then charge and want to charge you to clean it. <laughs> so they've estimated six hundred ninety million for that first quarter charge. So then they're saying four hundred million in twenty nineteen, four hundred million in twenty twenty, and then two hundred fifty million in twenty twenty one. So that puts them at uh, I'm not the greatest at math, but at about one point eight billion dollars in charges is what they they are estimating. So uh, so there you go for the worst data breach in human history, one point eight billion dollars is what you can count on. Uh, if that were to happen to, say, Amazon or Facebook, that... I just write a check. Yeah, yeah, that would just be a... Uh, grab like, something from Petty Cash. Uh, yeah, <laughs> add that to my lunch tab. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Susan, could you get that box and the key out from under your desk? We need uh, we need some money. Just yeah. one of the boxes. I don't need yeah. all 500. Yeah. <laughs> don't be unreasonable about it. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's head over now to our next article, which is on Tom's Hardware. And, and you know what? I'm going to struggle with this, uh, this headline here because we had a... Uh, a discussion the other day in our office uh, where four people were debating how you pronounce uh, that computer manufacturer's name, and now I'm like, I don't remember how I used to pronounce it. <laughs> so I'm going to go with uh, the Asus ZenBook Pro Duo has a huge second screen. Asus? Somebody, I think they were they settled on Asus. So like I A-C-E-S. used to always say Asus, yeah. right, is, is how I would say it. Uh, and then I watched one of their earnings reports where their CEO got up, and he said, uh, a and then Zeus, like the Greek god, to Zeus. Zeus. Yeah, so I, when I read this article, I actually thought about I was like, I wonder how other people say that, because I say Asus. Yeah. Uh, but not Zeus. Yeah. It's Asus. 
whatever. There's a giant screen on this keyboard. Well, I wouldn't go off of the earnings call, too, because I remember uh, how upset I got when I first learned how to say Kubernetes, and then uh, I mentioned their conference, and it was KubeCon. Oh, but that's something they do like, with well, all their tooling on. and stuff. <laughs> yeah, like CubeCon. Because I was all proud of myself. I'm like, well, at KubeCon, and Don's like, no, KubeCon. Yeah. Like, what? They just want to make you say it wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's actually it. K-U-B-A-Con. But anyway, yeah. that ZenBook <laughs> Pro Duo, it's that second E-Con. screen, is, is this another one of those where the keyboard's a screen now? When I saw the headline, I assumed it was like, remember, I think it was MSI had where you would open up the laptop and it would have a fold-out screen, right? That's what I assumed we were going to get. And then I, I looked at the pictures, which, um, here, let me pull it up. So here, here's one of the pictures oh. from Tom's Hardware. And basically, you've got a 4K screen on the laptop, which is impressive in and of itself, right? Uh, but then above the keyboard is a second screen that is a, is a 4K width, not a 4K height. Like, did uh, you hate that toolbar on the new MacBook? What if we make it bigger? <laughs> I, I cringed. It, it made me sad. I was like, I don't uh-huh. want this. How wide is this computer, like, depth-wise? Do you think? Well, the the keyboard, at least in these pictures, Here's the size down it, here. it appears to be a full-sized keyboard, right? Uh, and then it looks like it's got some kind of wrist rest attached to it. So I don't I don't think that wrist rest is normally on there. Fourteen point like, one is the width. Yeah, if you if you look at that, I bet if the lid closes, this wrist rest is sticking out. So that probably pops off. Ah. Mm. Uh, but you know, the keys are all the way to the edge. You'd normally have a touchpad right there. Yeah, yeah and they put that's it off to missing. The right. And I didn't notice this until like, was it you that yeah, told I brought me, it Justin? Up. Yeah, the the number pad, which I just assumed was the touchpad because it wasn't where it would normally be expected. So if you look at it, scroll down here, we got a different picture. The number pad is actually a touch screen as well. It doesn't look like it's color; it just looks like a, a black and white one. Um, but it's a touch screen, and I'm I'm guessing it somehow switches between a mouse mode and a number key mode. That would be my guess. Yeah. Uh, or. Well, no, it wouldn't just be a touchscreen instead of a mouse. Interesting. Well, that yeah, I'm I'm curious to see. Well, no, I'm thinking maybe that's a touchpad also. Yeah, like a that's normal touchpad. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, you can't really make out the little icons on here. There's a brightness one there. I, I don't know what this one is, but it looks. Uh, kind scroll down of to the like... next picture, Don. They actually zoom way in on it. Oh, they do. There you go. Oh yeah, look at that. See that little calculator icon there? Can I? Here, Windows will help me. Um, it looks like the, yeah. the the calculator button. I bet if you tap that, it switches to a mouse mode. Yeah. And then you tap it again, and it switches mm. back to a keypad. So that that's cool because you don't use your keypad all the time. And I'll tell you, doing uh, touch typing is terrible on a touch screen. Yeah, you got to so, look the whole time. But if you don't need the <laughs> if you don't need the number keys all that often, this isn't a bad compromise to make. At least the rest of the keys are tactile. I could probably handle that more so than the toolbar that I loathe with my very soul <laughs> being this wide. Because I can see it going, did you mean to turn the volume up and possibly restart your computer or subscribe to this ad and print and this? Siri, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I'd stop it. I don't <laughs> this, is like, this is like Exhibit on Pimp My Ride said, I heard you like that toolbar, so I put a toolbar under your toolbar. Yeah, yeah you know, it's... it's uh, Yeah, I'm not a fan. Do they give the resolution of that screen, the, the bottom one? It's... They say it's 14K, but it's uh, that's just the width. Or no, not 14K, 4K, yeah. but that's the width. They don't give a height on it. Um, yeah, I wonder how much you could really do with that. Is it so much to ask that I could just get a powerful, lightweight laptop that turns on and has a comfortable keyboard that doesn't break? Um, 
Yeah, they're called Lenovo's. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, and the gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> why don't uh, Why don't they just make uh, so we still have keys, but just make each key on the keyboard an individual little screen here, so the space bar can actually show me some video too. Well, while Peter, I touch it. if All this right. comes out in six months, hang on a minute. <laughs> we We don't have this as a news article, but have you seen my Elgato Stream Deck? No, no. Uh, it's It's off camera over here. I don't think I can get this on camera without destroying my desk, but it's... Oh, yeah. Each button is an LCD screen. Yes. And you you program it on the computer. Can I pull it in a little bit more there? We can sort of get it on camera. <laughs> um, so each button is an LCD screen, and I program it. It's what controls my monitors on the wall. And okay. I mean, you can have it launch programs. You can assign letters to it. Can I get a it. whole keyboard of that? So they, they a... just announced a new one two days ago that has 32 keys. So it's still just 32, but I get the whole every letter of the alphabet could fit on there, right? And I think um, Phantom, the company that had the the Vaporware game console, they released a, a Phantom keyboard where every button on the keyboard was a programmable. So that that makes more sense than this, though, because this <laughs> is this is a I mean it's a macro pad, right? Like if you do gaming or anything, it's a macro pad, but you can use it for other things. It's programmable. That one's switchable, so I don't have to remember. Oh well, if I want to launch or whatever, right? Uh, Crisis. I don't know. If mm-hmm. this is that's the upper right-hand button. You can actually just program it to print. Oh, this is Launch Crisis. So in the Elgato software, you can actually tell it to watch for certain executables, and when that executable has focus, it can change all the buttons to align with that program. So much like the touch bar on a Mac. Could it be like also where if I hit, you know, Option or Shift, it changes to show me? Like, because, you know, like, uh, which key is the, the copyright, you know, icon? I always forget. So you got to hit Option 4. No, shoot, Option 5. Or... I don't know if you can do that with the keyboard, but... Like, what I've done is you have a button that you can program, and when you hit it, you can choose okay, from different like menus. So, like, I've got different things set up yeah. to be able to do that. Uh, this is turning into a Elgato but, commercial. But, but this but, is an <laughs> ancillary product. Like, that did not replace your keyboard. Yeah, on I your... have a regular keyboard. So yeah, if I with function now, keys. If I act now, you'll send me two for the price <laughs> of one? You can get them on Amazon Prime. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll mentally send an affiliate link, and we'll make a dollar. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I do like money. Anyhow, I, I do like my little Stream Deck. Uh it only works with computers unlocked, which is nice because if your computer's locked, you don't want somebody coming and sending commands to it, and it's it's a neat little device. That's the one that we we wrote some of the the Python scripts to yeah. like switch those. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. okay. We should do a story like at the end of 2020. We should like make a calendar event now to remind us that we just look back at all of these dual screen <laughs> computers that we've talked about this year and uh, see how many have like caught on fire or just been abandoned as, Not or really been responsible for you know, like the fall of society. Uh, road rage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure, that'd be fun. Let's do that. Uh, all right, well, let's, uh, in the meantime, shift to our next story at anontech.com. PCI SIG finalizes PCIe 5.0 specification, X16 slots to reach 64 gigabytes a second. Wow, I didn't think they could go past 62, 63. So uh, I'm pumped. You, you did really great till that last little yeah. bit. <laughs> that, that didn't sound like I knew what I was talking about. Factors of Shoot. two there, Peter. Factors of two. Well, that's why I didn't think they'd go past it. <laughs> yeah, here's a, here's a headline that unless you have something to compare it to, doesn't necessarily mean much to you. But uh, um, Thank God there's a graph. So there, there's several things in here that we need to be aware of. First off, that PCIe 5.0 has been ratified. Uh, PCIe 4.0, just for the record, is still pretty darned uncommon. So, for example, I, I just built a new computer for me at home uh, 
a month and a half, two months ago. Uh, and the motherboard that I have, which is a, a current mainstream motherboard, doesn't have PCIe 4 on it, just PCIe 3. Uh, so this is kind of the coming down the line thing. It'll probably be two years before we really start to see this commonplace. Uh, that 64 gigabytes a second is really impressive. If you look at their chart, kind of what's been happening, they've been increasing speed pretty significantly year after year. And if you were to go back in time to PCIe 1.0, uh, back then, if you had a X16 PCIe 1.0 port, uh, it could only move about, uh, it was like four gigabytes, I think. Uh, it's somewhere here in the article where they have it, if I would just cheat and look. Yep. Uh, that it was, yeah, four gigabytes. So it was a simpler time. That was the, the best that PCIe 1.0 could do. Now under PCIe 5, it's all the way up to 64 gigs. These are significant jumps year after year after year, uh, and that makes for some really fast stuff, especially considering the SSDs today usually try to operate at about six gigabytes per second for their, their data throughput. So if you were on PCIe 1 or even PCIe 2, if you had two SSDs, you were already saturating your PCIe bus. Well, now you can get even further thanks to PCIe 5. Does this mean that I can put like 14 graphics cards in my computer and still get like pretty good performance? Well, you know, funny you should mention that because, uh, you know, when you get a motherboard, you'll normally have one or maybe two PCI slots that are actually X16 and the others will be X8 or X4s. They'll be lower. So if you're doing SLI, which I think is kind of not popular anymore. It was super trendy two years ago. Uh, but if you have more than one graphics card, then you might be able to do that. Uh, if you're Bitcoin mining and things, you know, you obviously want to have as many graphics cards as you can. You'll have to get a specialized board for that. Thank you for saying that. Yep. Because I was yep. about to ask <laughs> you <laughs> about that. What is an example? That's an example. Bitcoin of what? is a what? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's like a money. <laughs> the buzzword poison. Uh, yeah. Buzzword bingo. Um, for some reason, I actually went to like scientific computing or something like that, right? If this becomes readily accessible, then we could have a small office-based supercomputer that possibly does modeling and things of that nature. And if you have more of those, if that's more capable, then I can just start shoving things in there. Uh, so I went from a computational side and not so much from like a, a mining side or whatever. Yeah, I mean, on a computational side, you're still limited by the... the uh, the bus going into whatever processes you're working with. So like your GPUs, they have a limited bus. So uh, this, I think, gives us a lot of runway. It'll probably take a while for everything else to catch up and make it useful. All right. Uh, let's uh, stick with computer hardware news. Uh, well, kind of goes over to software on this one, but uh, Forbes.com uh, has this one. Dell accidentally confirms new version of Windows 10, and there is an update on this since I... Uh, originally saw yep. it, so I'll have to... So now we can say that update. Dell uh, accidentally confirms new version of Windows 10. The update is Dell officially says, no, there's no new version of Windows 10. So uh, so they backed off. But uh, a couple of days ago, there was a, a bit of hubbub or kerfuffle or whatever uh, where Dell had posted the specs of a new laptop, one of their new XPSs that are coming out. And in the uh, requirements or, or options that you could pick when you order this laptop... They listed two editions of Windows 10 Home. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, there's only one edition of Windows 10 Home. Uh, they announced that there was Windows 10 Home. Hang on, they got a screenshot down here somewhere. Here, Windows 10 Home 64-bit, and right beneath that, Windows 10 Home Ultra 64-bit. And nobody's seen that before. This was a first reference to it. And so everybody started saying, well, wait a minute, is, is a new version of Windows Home or a new SKU coming out? Uh, 
they came back later, uh, a representative from Microsoft and a representative from Dell, and said, no, that was just a mistake. It's not, uh, it's not actually coming out. But there have been talks over the last year or two about another version of Windows for home users. I, I had a conversation with Adam Gordon, one of the edutainers at IT Pro TV earlier this week about it, because uh, I'm still confused why Microsoft has multiple SKUs for Windows 10 anyway. Right, because it used to be that you had the professional version and the home version, and the pro version could connect to a domain, right? And the home version couldn't. That was the main difference. Well, domains are steadily declining in relevance because we have all these mobile devices now that don't join the domain, and so we have to manage them different ways. So the value, the perceived value of being able to join a domain is pretty small. But they had creeped at one point to where they had numerous SKUs, because I was trying to name all the ones uh, for Windows, uh, I think it was Windows Vista that had the most, where you had uh, you had home, home premium, you had professional, enterprise, business. Wasn't there like a, a Vista Media something? Media like? Center, yeah. probably. Yeah, so you had all these different versions of Windows. But then if you look at Mac OS, there's one version of Mac OS. If you go to most Linux distros uh, on the desktop side, there's one Ubuntu desktop. There's one... Uh, I don't know, Red Hat Workstation, Red Hat Enterprise Linux Workstation. Everybody else just has one SKU, but Microsoft has all of these different ones. It seems like that business model shouldn't exist anymore. You know what? I, first thing I thought after I saw the updates, I was like, yeah, it's not going to be called Ultra. It's actually Windows 10 Home Ultimate. Because uh, you know, technically, Ultra's not coming out. I don't think I named Ultimate in my list a minute ago. I remember that one. It was supposed to have every feature. Yeah. Yeah. So be interested to see how this goes. I, I have a hard time keeping up with the whole Windows thing because, like, uh, for Windows 10, Pro and Home, like, changing the updates is also something else that you yeah. get for those two different licenses, right? Yeah, and there was something about, like, uh, multi-language support and all that. But I'm, I'm holding out for Windows 10 Home MK Ultra. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes with LSD. Yep, crazy. <laughs> and it's actually just Linux. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's the Linux distro you've been waiting yeah. on. Uh, all right, uh, let's get, uh, go over to Motherboard um, by Vice uh, on vice.com. Snapchat employees abuse data access to spy on users. Uh, we can file this under who who saw this coming? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did, I did. Multiple sources and emails also describe SnapLine, an internal tool used by various departments to access Snapchat user data. So when they said that, uh, that your little snaps would, would disappear after a certain amount of time, um, it, they they didn't. Yeah. Oh, surprise. I can't yeah. believe that they didn't. Color me shocked. So there's two sides to this uh, that are, are both kind of equally shocking, I guess. But um, it turns out that, that, that Snapchat obviously does retain a lot of your information. They don't actually retain copies of your snaps, though. Uh, SnapLion, that name, is a reference to a law enforcement utility they made. So they, they made a utility that when they got law enforcement requests for information about somebody they were investigating, they could use the SnapLine utility, and it would basically pull together all the information they had on somebody. And what they found was that even though your snap disappears after 24 hours, the metadata around that snap was still retained. And so the fact that you sent a message to somebody was still there, but not necessarily the message itself. And uh, your location data was there. And, and that, that helps law enforcement because they can kind of put you at a place and establish or validate an alibi, whatever. Um, so that was kind of revelation number one is, look, there's a lot of data that stays behind in your snaps. Revelation number two was that numerous employees inside of the Snapchat organization had access to this tool. 
not just the security team, but also some of the customer support team, some of the network administration team, and, and other people had access to the tool. And anonymous reports, so these are employees that, that wouldn't uh, – they wouldn't stand by this to publish their name or they thought they would lose their job. Uh, they basically came out and said, look, we know for a fact that employees regularly use the SnapLine tool just to watch people. Yeah, just kill to, time over lunch. Yeah, yeah, just to read up on what's going on with, with various people that are not in uh, relation to a law enforcement request. Wasn't Snap, didn't they release a feature, I don't know, probably about a year ago where it essentially broadcast your location to other Snapchat, Snapchat users? Was is that was that I, Snapchat? That would require me using this product ever. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, from day one, I immediately went. I am distrusting uh, of this entire yeah. premise. I'll run to stor- uh, Starbucks. And I can ask a fourteen-year-old girl, and we can find <laughs> out. So on the on the sign-up form, it actually asks for your birth date, and when it sees that you're over the age of twenty-one, it won't let you create an account. Yeah. It just says no. Talk to your kids. As it should. <laughs> As it should. <laughs> Your kids won't talk to you, though, because they're on Snapchat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, all right. This is uh, an update on something we reported on recently. Uh, Baltimore says it will not pay ransom after a cyber attack. So they're standing their ground, and they're actually encouraging other cities uh, to do the same. Um, but not maybe all have the resources that a, a larger city like Baltimore has. So, uh, you know, decision they had to make on their own. So, you know, a couple of things here. A lot of people are, are applauding the city of Baltimore. Hey, great job, guys. You're not paying the ransomware. That's how we stop these kind of cycles. The uh, the ransom was $100,000 in, in Bitcoin. Uh, and there's a free buzzword for you. Uh, no, we, we did so, that one already. Oh, we already did? You've, you've said that multiple oh, times. I thought I said uh, – oh, never mind. Uh, so what, what is it? <laughs> uh, what did you think you said? So, uh, uh, you know, it was $100,000. They've estimated. Well, Peter, you told me what, what I was, think the it was eighteen damages? million that they uh, that they estimated would be the cost to the city. So, yeah, if you're a taxpayer in Baltimore, you're like, hey, uh, I'm all for those uh, you know ethics and things that you have. But yep. hmm. now I know this article got a little long winded, but did you make it all the way to the end to see what their plan was to recoup the eighteen million dollars? God, no. I I did. So I, so they said the attackers used the Eternal Blue exploit that the Shadow Brokers released. That was one of the stolen NSA tools. And so they're saying the NSA made this exploit, so we hope they have the keys to decrypt our data, which I can guarantee you they don't, right? You know, like the attacker's going to generate their own keys. That's just, that's wishful thinking. They shouldn't have even put that in the article. But then they said, uh, so we've asked the NSA to defray the cost, and they're, they're hoping that the federal government will pay for the damages instead of them because... The NSA learned about this exploit. Well, how how did it get out from the NSA? Uh, shadow brokers, like there was a, another hacking group that like gained access to these tools and released okay. them public, right? Yeah, there was a there was a contractor that worked for the NSA who had all these tools, uh, and he had them on his home computer. And it's not the guy I'm thinking it is. He was running antivirus that was Kaspersky antivirus, right? Which is a Russian based company. And so what they're saying is that the Russian government reached in through the antivirus as those files were inspected. They didn't wow. have to reach in because they were sent up to Kaspersky to be investigated. Yeah. Uh, and that they gained access to the tools and then released them. Now, it's not totally confirmed that it was the Russian government. It could have been independent sure. actors or whatever. Um, but they were able to capture that, and, and that's how those tools got out. And this is why you don't take your work home if you work at the NSA. Yeah, and, and if the story sounds a little fuzzy to you, that's because this happened back in 2017, Right. Coincidentally, Microsoft released a patch for Eternal Blue in 2017. So, again, the city of Baltimore is saying, well, you know, the NSA released this. 
I think the city of Baltimore probably should have run at least one update since 2017. It's called, uh, someone called it gross malfeasance, yeah. which is a word I love. Y- yeah, the cybersecurity firm Errata Security said Microsoft provided the, the patch and going two years without an update. This actually follows from an article that uh, about like infrastructure and cost of like upgrades and things at a uh, like municipal level that I think it was me, you, and Daniel were talking about way like at the end of last year. And eighteen million dollars doesn't seem too uh, too hefty, because make an update, you don't have this. Mm-hmm. You're not at eighteen million dollars. Um, it's interesting. This also says some experts say that other malware known as Robinhood was using the attack, not Eternal Blue. Was that an NSA? Well, uh, so they haven't released details on yeah, this one, so we don't sure. really have all we can rely on is what the city of Baltimore is telling us. And so the city of Baltimore is saying it was Eternal Blue. Uh, how some of these other people are saying that it was Robin Hood, I don't know. Which we have no reason to not believe the city of Baltimore. Well, yeah, that's true. No, I'm being sarcastic. Have you not seen all the stuff about their mayor that just resigned? No, what happened with it? Uh-huh. Uh, she, tell. Was, she was embezzling money. Uh, oh, was this her... the book deal? Yeah, that was the Baltimore The mayor, kids' books. Sure. Like she was writing children's books. and uh... No, that wasn't. Yeah. No, was it? it was. Yeah. All right. No, maybe. Let's see. It's uh, hard, um, especially for our, yeah. our audience members Catherine that are not Pugh. here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, we have, in the United States, we have a uh, really, uh, we have freedom of speech, open, transparent government, and so we're able to see our corruption on a regular basis. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to keep track of it all. Yep. Because uh, <laughs> the, the first headline I found when searching her name is, Korean Society of Baltimore seeks return of $60,000 in campaign c- contributions uh, made to... Uh, Pew, Catherine Pew, who's not currently the governor, right? Someone else is like that's already. Yeah, the new mayor was sworn like in uh, eleven days ago, ah. uh, May or this oh. is May ninth. So uh, she's still mayor then, because their computers all have ransomware on them, right? Yeah. So they can't like change it out. Yeah, she's still there. They haven't been able to print <laughs> the new signs yet because Print Shop Pro won't open. <laughs> print shop pro. Well, if they haven't upgraded their uh, on Windows Vista Ultimate Media, so I gotta know. Do they still make print shop? Oh, God, what I was hope that so. company? Um, we used to make banners on it with the, with the dot matrix printer. Was that a Macromedia product? No, this is before that. Forever ago, yeah. Uh, Broaderbund. That was the company that made it. Um, I'm just trying to see if they still make it. it no, we're 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 taking our lives in our hands, showing your your real. I know. I'm search. just going to a random. It's fine. Uh, they do oh, we found something. We it's a hundred dollars for print shop, and it still exists. Yeah. Oh, see, for what I, versions of Windows? I want. I, oh, I want a classic three point one to put up on your wall back there next to Bob and Red Hat. Uh, yeah, Red Hat version. Huh. That's zero. Impressive. All right. Well, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> we learned something today. Uh, all right, uh, let's head back to Tom's Hardware now for our next article, uh, also a security article here. Uh, report says one million systems were affected by a remote desktop vulnerability. And we have an update here as well, which is what we always love to get. Uh, had an update uh, just today. Um, but let's first get the, the backstory here. So, uh, John, can you bring us up to speed on, on what's yeah. going on? So, um, and if there's an update, I haven't seen it, so I'll be curious to see what it is. But uh, uh, there's a zero day out that affects the Microsoft Remote Desktop Protocol. Uh, it allows an attacker to interrupt the authentication process and actually be able to send commands in uh, and you know, have access to your system, which is bad, right? So this is, is really one of those really, really bad uh, vulnerabilities. On a positive side, 
they do need to have access to your machine, or not not physical access, but they need to be able to access port 3389 on your machine, which is what remote desktop runs on. So most people, even if you have remote desktop turned on on your laptop or desktop, it's probably not accessible from the internet. So that kind of minimizes the impact. One of the security researchers that reported in the article uh, had done a scan and found, uh, I forget how many, something like 9 million systems that were running it, but only 1 million that were affected. And, and the, the reason that number got so much smaller was that years ago, I mean, we're talking like 10 years ago, Microsoft rolled out a new security protocol that goes along with remote desktop called uh, NLA, Network Level Authentication. Uh, that was introduced, they say Windows 8, Windows 10. It was introduced back in Windows XP, but it was an optional thing. Uh, and then in newer versions, it became on by default. So as long as you have NLA turned on, you're not affected. As long as an attacker can't get to you on port 3389, you're not affected, so you're protected there. But I know I used to do port forwarding for 3389 on my on my home firewall so that, uh, you know, when I was out in the field, I could remote into my computer at home. If I had done that, uh, which I don't do anymore, but I, I used to, uh, so if I had done that and wasn't requiring NLA, then I'd be one of these 1 million people that were vulnerable. So if you're doing that, if you're exposing RDP for your network, I know a lot of network administrators like to do that, uh, to be able to remote into their work computer or whatever. Uh, double check, make sure you're requiring NLA, then you're taken care of here. If not, consider restricting access to port 3389 on your firewall. Uh, just FYI, I opened this article earlier, also, Don, and I did not have the update. Upon refresh, the update will be at the bottom. Oh, so the update has happened actually while we're filming. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, so that's while we were... Updates at the bottom? I and, and the update says update. this no, article like right is under entirely the top. false. Oh, oh okay. It's, it's like right, right under that. the... Yep, right there. Yes. So Microsoft issued a second warning about the Blue Keep uh, vulnerability, noting that in addition to roughly... One million internet-connected systems affected by the flaw. There could be many more computers inside corporate networks uh, that are also uh, vulnerable. So it's just the ones that that they could see, I guess, earlier. Well, so what they're warning people there is about a, a leapfrog attack, right? Mm -hmm. So if if you have a compromised machine behind your firewall, then that machine would be able to access port thirty-three eighty-nine and all the other systems on your network, and so you'd be vulnerable there. So yeah, it's a, a good reminder and, and absolutely true. So uh, a neat update. And yeah, it's six fifty a.m. Pacific time. So this was. Right, right while we were filming. Awesome. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> Good times. Things are really coming together. All right. Uh, let's head over now to uh, Duo.com and their Decipher blog. Uh, Docker bug allows root access to host file system. Um, Justin, you know things about Docker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so once again, my biggest complaint, every article about Docker has to show what? A shipping container. Thank you. I know. I'm uh, going to say. Oh, that's what that is. Get, yeah, it's always shipping I, container. It's like barges of shipping containers always, with a whale on it. Oh, uh, you know, I, uh, I I glanced across it real quick and thought it was like a memory like a, array. Yeah, it looked no. like a, a, yeah. a chip yeah. or something so at first because the, the green. It's always like a barge with shipping containers, a shipping container, ship, shipping containers. Uh, uh, yeah, what was it? Shipping, ship, shipping, shipping ships? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a weird. By the way, that's a real thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm not so much the security individual. I actually had to read about the attack a little bit in here. Uh, not, I am more security aware now than I used to be. Because you know, of this podcast? Well, podcast, various interactions, typically with Don. Don will make you paranoid. Mm -hmm. you hang out with him. Yeah. I still um, haven't taken my FOSCAM camera down. So, <laughs> <not too paranoid. laughs> so it doesn't work. But yeah. yeah. So I just assume like people do really bad things with Docker containers. Yeah. Like leave the root user as the default user and the running user of the container for a web application that's being exposed, 
I'm like, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. So, yeah. At the end of the day, though, like Docker, it, it's a container system, right? So it's supposed to take whatever your application is, and no matter how crappy that application is written, I mean, if it's got SQL injections and all sorts of stuff just built right into the app, it doesn't matter because it's in that container, right? So access to the underlying OS is obfuscated, not obfuscated, but but actually separated, isolated. You can't get to it, and uh, and so you're protected. You've you've limited the scope of the attack. So when you hear about an attack like this, where you get root access to the host file system. That is a very, very powerful thing because if you have root access to the host file system, then you could go and write things to like the sudoers file and enable yourself sudo permissions to then be able to execute other commands. You can create, uh, I mean, you could define a user account. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff that you could do with just access to the file system, not even necessarily access to other commands. So it's pretty powerful. Uh, the way this attack works is actually based on a well-known type of attack that they reference in here. Uh, it's called a, a time of use. Where is that? T O U. Here we go. T O C T O U. Time of check to time of use, or T O C T O U. T O C T O U. Uh, if you've never heard of that type of attack, be aware of it because what happens is a lot of times an application will run and it'll do something, uh, and it says like, "All right, uh, Justin's about to write to a file." So I need to find out if he has permissions. So I'm going to look at this directory and see if he has permissions. And then if he does, then I'm going to go and write to this file. Well, if that happens immediately, that's great, right? But what if there's a delay in between? So it checks and it says, oh, yeah, Justin has permissions on the file. And then as an administrator, I go and remove those permissions. And then the application goes to write. Well, the application's already checked. So it then goes and it performs the write, even though those permissions are gone. Now, applications tend to execute things in nanoseconds, like really, really fast. So it, it's super hard to pull off this type of a thing. But what the security researchers found was that um, in the file writing system inside of Docker, there's a little gap in time when a container comes up where it's writing its own files, which it needs access to the, the uh, base file system. And you can exploit that from that time of check uh, so that it will check and see, like, yeah, you should be allowed to write. And then you go in and you actually do that write uh, before it finds out that you're not supposed to. So this style of attack is not new, but using it inside of Docker is. And so this is a big deal. Uh, they have already created a patch for this and rolled it out. If you use Docker in your system, you absolutely need to do this one as soon as you can. Uh, otherwise, your base operating system is, uh, is in danger. And I think this highlights something that you know people are like, oh, well, Docker's safe. Just like you said, it's it's mm -hmm. segregated. It's segmented from my base file system, my base computer. However, diving a little bit deeper into like how Docker containers work, eh, just assume that it's not is is a, probably a good practice. Don't let the root file, you know, the root user be your running user inside your Docker container. Do appropriate things, uh, and for things like. This is a this is a programming issue, mm -hmm. right? I check, yeah, it looks good, and then I, I allow writes, but then I've allowed time for another write. Uh, that's a data race condition. Those things can happen all over software. It just so yeah. happens that they're in Docker, and and it happens with virtual machine technologies too. You hear about VM escapes, and that that's some. I mean, you know, not necessarily using a, a talk to attack, but uh, but those types of things are, are real. So we just need to stay on top of them, and that that's why we report on them right here on TechNative Public we're, Service. We're doing our our part. That's kids, right. the more you know. Uh, all right, let's head over to gsuiteupdates.googleblog.com, uh, which is 
this is the official site, right? This is the official okay. Google blog, yep. Um, all right, so Gmail Confidential Mode, which we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, uh, is launching on or on by default on June 25th, 2019. So uh, coming up in uh, in under a month here. And, and uh, Confidential Mode, uh, let's recap again for the people that maybe sure. didn't catch that other episode. So uh, Google has, it's actually been in preview for a while now. You could actually go and turn it on right now if you want uh, this this uh, confidential mode. It's going to be on by default on June 25th. So if you're a G Suite administrator, this is going to be on. So just be be ready for it. You can turn it off if you don't want it, uh, but it is going to be on. And what confidential mode does is it adds some extra protections for people when they're sending emails through G Suite. When you send an email, you'll actually have the option to set things like a time limit, that if they don't read this email in the next seven days, then the email gets deleted. Or even if they do read it, like you like only... Snapchat. Yeah, like Snapchat. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in the future, we'll see uh, Google reading your emails. <laughs> I just assume that happens yeah, anyway. That happens. Well, well the, I'll they talk do about that in a second because they can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so you can set time limits on emails. You can prevent them from being printed. You can... Uh, probably the coolest feature, if you know the person's cell phone number you can require them to enter in a code that is sent to them via text message in order to read the email. Like an OTP? Yeah, because if you think about it, like let's say I send a secure email to Peter, right? And, and so it's he's in G Suite, I'm in G Suite, I send him the email, and then somebody on the Foscam in his house sees him type in his password. Oh, man. And so now they, they go and they log in as him. Well, when they log into Peter's mailbox, they're him, right? So they can see the email. Who cares what protection's on it? They can see it because it's his credentials. So by requiring that text message, you get an extra layer. So if somebody's in your mailbox, they'd have to have your cell phone also. And it's tied to just that one email, which I, I think is a pretty slick feature. Uh, it's pretty cool. Now, I wondered, how does that work? And I, I don't remember if we ever talked about how it works. But the, the, the way that it works is, it, is when you send the email, it takes the message body and any attachments, and it pulls them out of the email and it replaces them with links. And so on the other end, they receive the email, and if if they're using G Suite on the other side, then it'll validate them, and if they validate, then all the attachments in the message body shows up. If they don't validate, it's just the links that are there. And if you go to like a third-party mail client, they just see the links, which is kind of messy. Uh, and so they have to then click on the link to go to the Google site and authenticate, and then they actually see it. So it's, it's not the most... Uh, Eloquent, graceful yeah. system. Ergonomics. Um, Would it yeah. be an ergonomics thing? It, it hurts your wrists. Yeah, when yeah. You're, you're like, ah, I have to click yeah. everything. But D does it? Are you, are you saying then this only works on someone sending from G Suite to G Suite? Uh, so it only works if you're sending from G Suite. The recipient doesn't actually have to be on G Suite. Okay. Uh, but if they, it, it's a little less easy for them if they're not on G Suite as as a recipient. You'll have to click a link. You'll have to have a Google account. Uh, you know, so you have to authenticate. Uh, and then you'll have access to that content. So it's it's an interesting system. But the other thing is a lot of people assume that confidential mode was going to be end-to-end -end encryption. And so Google wouldn't be able to see your your content. Uh, <laughs> but then how would they Absolutely not true, there? right? Yeah. So, yeah, they, they take the message body and the attachments, and they store it separate. They still have access. So as a G Suite administrator, you might be worried about uh, if you have to do discovery, right? So if the attorneys come and say, I need all of Justin's emails for the last three months, Right. Because this, this happens a lot. And, and I say, well, I'm, I'm sorry. He used end-to-end -end encryption. I can't do that. Well, actually, you can. With your G Suite tools, you just go into Discovery, and it's all right there. Because the, the content is still stored on their server. So it's, there's no real like corporate privacy on this. But it does help to restrict things on that email once it leaves your organization. 
Uh, real quick, you said, you know, like restricting printing and things. My immediate thought is, what about screenshots? Like, does it lock down your keyboard? No, nah, I can't do that. You can, you yeah, see, that, that's, that's one of the... Because printing from a browser, you can manipulate that. I can, like, capture keyboard commands and, and make sure that's not happening. But I was like, I usually just open up a snippet tool, take a picture of it, and then... Pr- I mean, yeah. or I've heard of people doing that. Yeah. Well, I... I had a program once that uh, I, I won't name it, but it was it was annoying. Uh, it was DRM, and so it, it would it would prevent you from hitting like print screen and taking a screenshot and stuff like that. But I, I needed the graphic that was in there, so I just opened it in a virtual machine and then took a snapshot from my host machine, and that was that. Right? So I mean, it was like trivial to bypass yeah. this thing. That's why DRM is really a waste of time. Yeah. So. Well, it's just like like Snapchat. You can you can take a screen grab, but it alerts the person that you you took a screen grab. And you learned this from a 14-year-old girl? <laughs> Look. <laughs> you set it up, man. I can't help it. You, yeah, you threw no. a softball in the I air, and I had a the, uh... 32-inch bat just ready. Although, I, I will argue that even with Snapchat, like if you were to, let's say you brought up one of those Android and a VM type things or in the Snapchat client in there, I bet you could take that. your screen grab from the host OS and I, it wouldn't I, even know it. I bet you could. Yeah. I, right, I'm, sounds like I'm an experiment. Certain. Let's give it a try. I mean, who has a Snapchat account here? I do. <laughs> do you really? But I don't have an Android. Well, yeah. Well, we we use it um, for work a little bit. What do we use it for here? I don't know. We have a Snapchat filter. So, oh, like, when if you come to the office here, it just puts a big red beard a, on you. No, it's got like an IT Pro TV logo and hmm. and things. And so we're testing it. And oh stuff wait, and I, I, Amanda actually, created that, yeah, right? Now and that uh, yeah, and I if think I, I remember you know, that, and sure, I want to make it so I look like a dog when I stick my tongue out and. All that stuff. Who doesn't? Like all the kids. Really? But no, they've got that new filter. Have you? Uh, we were doing this in Slack um, the other day around the company. Oh, that was Snapchat. Like I, Snapchat, the where swap? it changes you a yeah. uh, gender swap. Yeah. Um, which, like, I'm like, how did I even know I was a man to start with? I'm, I'm, <laughs> like, how disappointing would it be if I'm like, wait, I look more like a man. Wait, what, what are you saying, Snapchat? Um, but yeah, we should do that at the end of this. And uh, It just uh, made me look like my sister. <laughs> oh, you did it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, pretty tried to do this. And all I did was went, you have a beard. Oh! Because yeah, like at the time my beard was longer, so it would okay, hang down yeah. from my chin. Oh, we'll have to and try so it again go, now. Oh, yeah, pretty eyes and a giant man beard. <laughs> <laughs> you should be in the circus. Uh, yep. yep. Uh, all right, uh, we'll we'll do that at the end. We'll, we'll have some fun here. All right, let's head over now to ComputerWorld.com. AT and T becomes first big mobile carrier to accept. Bitcoin payments. And if you haven't checked off Bitcoin yet in your buzzword bingo, where have you been? We've said it about 10 times. But uh, AT&T joins a small list of e-commerce businesses who now accept cryptocurrency. Oh, thank goodness, because I don't have Bitcoin on my card. <laughs> a form of payment <laughs> growing in popularity, especially among younger customers. And is that true, or is it just growing in popularity among criminals? Um, that, that was my own opinion. I added on there, not in the article. <laughs> well, Computer World. My first thought was, you know, if you're getting a burner phone here, it, it's even easier. Like if oh. you can pay with Bitcoin. Uh, uh, man, Don, I didn't even go for like criminal activity, and you went there. I, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, oh, you did, right? No? You didn't think about. I mean, when you read tech news, you got to think. All right, how can how can criminals use this? That's how you're supposed to read crypto, this. I just told you, I'm not. I was not a security minded individual. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I guess you can buy an easy burner phone. With I mean, you can buy but a burner phone right now with cash, so that's just yeah, as but good. You could steal it from the city of Baltimore. Ooh, yeah, hmm. you could get Baltimore to pay for it. That, that's what I mean. Can you please say cryptocurrency? Because so far, only I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm trying to like. Well, there's other ways. There's other. There's uh, other ways. There uh, always is. <laughs> there's other 
digital monies. <laughs> and I was disappointed to see that it wouldn't take Ethereum or a mm-hmm. Litecoin, Dogecoin even, like if I Dogecoin, could buy a, yeah. or pay for my account. I, I do wonder, on a legitimate basis, like how many people are asking AT&T to pay with Bitcoin? Because I, I just don't see who would make use of that. It, Besides what you just described. Maybe yeah. it's a marketing thing. Drug dealers. Oh. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, yeah. So this is one of the things where I've always wondered how how do large corporations take this because there's always been a volatility. Maybe I haven't checked the market lately, yeah. uh, but like cryptocurrency markets tend to be very very volatile. How can they confirm that they're so, uh, accepting correct payment? Because I'm looking at Coinbase and all those, you're like, oh yeah, wham, yeah, uh, in a matter of minutes. Like, how does that work? Yeah, because it was as high as like twenty thousand yeah. dollars at one point last year, and then it was down to three thousand dollars earlier this year. It's been all over the place, and and it's not just Bitcoin. Like any any of the blockchain based currencies, they're they're all over the board, and it's because it's fake money. And Ooh, <laughs> we just said blockchain. We, I did. Uh, we've seen uh, a number of these uh, reports lately that are showing where the majority of the transactions on the cryptocurrency exchanges are are fraudulent. They're they're fake. Like I think they were saying, like over eighty percent of the transactions are fake. So when you can't rely on the value of the currency, I have to imagine AT and T is viewing this as a marketing expense, and they're just saying, look, if let's say we get a million dollars in bills paid, well. People talked about it, so it was a million dollars in marketing expense. That, that, I have to figure that's how they justify the volatility. We're all talking about how forward-thinking they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I can't even tell you're bitter. So, how, how, what do you what do you mean <laughs> that that the transactions are fake? Because isn't that the whole point of blockchain that we're able to to see that these transactions existed and you can and you can see that they're fake and you can ignore them, right? But there's that fifty percent attack where if somebody can ever take over more than fifty percent, oh. that fake transaction becomes real. But the fake transactions still occur. And even though they're not being accepted, they take away the processing time. So I I don't know if you've heard like how long it takes for a Bitcoin transaction to process, but there have been times where it's stretched to be many hours. <laughs> And so in theory, like you could go to AT&T. And the market could change could, in that hour. Well, you could pay your bill with the uh, you know, stolen Bitcoin. You just, hell, you could make up a string and stick it in there. Yep. And then they wouldn't be able to check it for three hours. And, and then you walk away and it turns out that it didn't even work. Now, in their case, they would just cancel your number, right? There's a, a good mm-hmm. attached to this. But uh, I know Overstock, Overstock.com, they started selling furniture and things and accepting Bitcoin for it. So imagine they've already shipped out the couch, and then it turns out your payment's not real. Uh, that That's the type of thing that can happen. This almost sounds like a timing attack, kind of like the Docker thing, right? Time to I, check I'm, versus time yeah, of use. Like, yeah. oh, here you go. I gave you money, and then, oh, look, I got a free couch. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there they would know your address at least. You could get it sent to somebody else's house. I mean, if I'm going <laughs> so, to pay with fake Bitcoin, then I'm at least going to make up an address. Yeah. Or a name. And well, get a boner burner phone. What's the point though? Then, if you get a couch sent to the wrong address, I guess if you're just doing it as a prank. Well, no, I mean maybe, <laughs> maybe you go, oh yeah, I accidentally put this wrong. Sorry, my address is blah blah blah, and then you just pick up the couch and you leave. But then, I guess that's an interaction with an inter- a person. Yeah, I don't know. Well, there's, I, I feel this is a marketing ploy. This is just something they're doing for advertising. It certainly worked, so yeah, uh, best of luck to them. And the article mentions Overstock again. Overstock.com was one of the first uh, to, uh, to accept it, and they're still being mentioned as a result of that. You so. know, they mentioned in here that uh, Overstock was first and that uh, 
their venture capital arm has been making investments. I thought Overstock stopped taking Bitcoin. I thought they backed away from it. They don't mention that in the article because I, I seem to remember that happening. Um, I'd Google search it, but Bitcoin Google searches are not yeah. good for live on air. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's check on the uh, – well, I'm not going to say it. Yeah. Well, I'll say the dark web. But All right. Oh, you did say I know. I'll do it for you. I I'm not going to not say things I want to say because, oh, wow, Don's getting close. I am getting close. All right. Oh, that's not going to well, happen today. Let's, uh, let's move right, on because yeah. we're definitely <laughs> about to hit some buzzwords let's here. Let's go over the verge because 5G could mean less time to flee a deadly hurricane, heads of NASA and NOAA warn. They're suggesting people could die because we won't have enough evacuation time. Uh and, and you guys were discussing this a little bit before we, we started recording today. So um, you were saying that, that this doesn't this sounds a little fishy? or Yeah. I, I, you know, I am kind of proud of The Verge for doing a fairly responsible headline. Because uh, if I were a sensationalist, the headline I would have used is uh, 5G rollout poised to murder everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's how I would have gone I'd, with it. I'd, I'd click on it. Yeah, I'd <laughs> click on it. I'd, 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 Used to do some weather data analysis uh, in, a, in a previous role, so I probably would have clicked on it anyway. Still kind of sensational. You dig into the article, eh, there's some maybe not, maybe not. This is going to happen. So basically, uh, NOAA and NASA have come out and said that the the new 5G networks occupy a wireless frequency that is dangerously close to a frequency that they use for their weather reporting satellites and weather balloons. Uh, and so what they're saying is that. Of all the weather data they collect, potentially the 5G towers could interfere with them collecting weather data and invalidate as much as 70% of the weather data that comes in. Now, Justin, you pointed out a neat mathematical fact on this article. you want to take that one? Yeah. So they say, oh, up to 77% of the data they're currently collecting could be lost right, due to interference within those bands, reducing our forecast ability by as much as 30%. Okay, so that rem- the remaining 23% of the data accounts for 70% of our forecast ability. <laughs> Sounds like the important stuff still gets through. Yeah, and <laughs> so they, they further talk about it. Um, it's roughly how we would forecast back in 1980 uh, because we don't have that data. And so it would cut the time by two to three days. Okay, weather's really hard anyway. Yeah. Uh, we live in Florida. I'm surprised it's not raining right now, it, or maybe not. And. In 40 years, they've only improved the quality of their data by 30%. <laughs> it, it, is, it is an incredibly difficult field to forecast weather data of any appreciable time. Tropical cyclones, hurricanes are actually easier because they're giant. Uh, but it seems like we might be okay because there's still yeah. those people who are like, I'm not going to go anywhere regardless of whether you tell them five days or three days. So yeah. I, I'll tell you, you know, tornadoes are really the big deal because they pop out of nowhere and and people die. They're really dangerous. We don't usually have tornadoes in Florida. Sometimes we get them spun off of hurricanes. Hurricanes are way more destructive because they're big, but we've got days and days of notice on these things. And, I mean, you can, you can visually see them coming. Yeah. Uh, but the argument here is that if we start to degrade our weather data, that it'll take longer for them to be confident enough to make an announcement of which areas need to evacuate. And that gives people less time to evacuate and puts people in danger. Now, the thing that isn't really mentioned in here, and I, I've brought this up a few times, I, I would love to interview somebody from the FCC because their job is to make sure that all this stuff doesn't interfere. But, you know, 
I've seen interference in electronic devices for years and years now. Like most recently, there's the whole Bluetooth versus USB 3.0 stuff going on. Have you guys run into that? I, I haven't. It hasn't affected me. It hasn't affected. I can't. It seems familiar, but I, it's not popping into so my head. So USB 3, when it's moving at full data speed, so like if you have a USB 3 hard drive hooked up, it interferes with Bluetooth. And so if huh. you have a, like a USB Bluetooth receiver, forget that thing. Your Logitech mice and stuff will go crazy. Uh, but just Bluetooth in general on your laptop will freak out while you're transferring data on your hard drive. And that's exactly what the FCC is supposed to prevent. Uh, in the past, you had... Uh, I think it was the 2.4 gigahertz space where microwaves would interfere with your cordless phones. Mm -hmm. And that's why you started seeing cordless phones in 900 megahertz and 5 gigahertz because they were trying to get away from the microwave frequencies. Uh, so we've had interference like that. Did either of you ever have a Nextel phone with yeah, the push no, to talk? The push to talk. Yeah. I didn't have it. So anytime somebody had one of these push to talk phones and they would walk near computer speakers, you would hear like that. And, and it was the, the Nextel frequency. So when they were talking, or, or just 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 it was going by. polling the wow. home to see if a push talk was coming sure. in. So yeah, the the phone could be in their pocket and it would do that. So I have to wonder, like either either the FCC has the hardest job on the planet, or they're just not very good at it. Well, it's got to be one or the other, right? I, I've got to guess <laughs> because now, I mean, it is a government agency, so there are limitations to yeah. what we can achieve. But still, yeah. Uh, quick side fact: uh, looking at actual NOAA data about uh, tornadoes, which I agree with you. Tornadoes are way more devastating. We actually get a bunch in Florida. We get 66, which are roughly about where plain states are, except for Texas, because it's giant, uh, uh, per year on average between 1991 and 2010. However, ours are tiny. They're like less than what they call F1s and oh. stuff. They're just like, boop, and then they're gone. They're not like the ones that happen outside of Oklahoma City that are a mile wide and have 300-mile-per-hour uh, winds. What do those come off of? Cumulus? I don't know. I just know that you have to have upward cyclonic action, which usually means you have land heating. I'm trying to figure out which buzzword he's going for here because uh, stratonimbus isn't one of our words. <laughs> oh, you mean him? Uh, I was like, no, those are actual things. I'd... Dang it. Because <laughs> I am one away. One oh, away. wait a minute. That didn't you, work. Uh, yeah, I'm one away, but my words are oh, stupid words. I'm not going to say Yes, you did. No, I did not. Yes, I said cumulus. <laughs> no, you, yeah, I'm pretty sure you said that. I did not. <laughs> Now we're going to have a battle. Uh, I 100% did not, because right, I, I, I made sure to, to not say it. I said, what are those come off of? Cumulus? Ah, uh, whatever. Yeah, because yeah, I'm still not going to win, Peter. I know. Uh, let's move on to my favorite else. article. This I've been dying to get this one up here. Creepy. If you're not watching on video, this would be a good time to uh, to pause and, and go check out the video, because we're going to show something here. Or you can check out the site that we mentioned as well uh, when you get the opportunity next. But uh, over on businessinsider.com, the Mona Lisa was brought to life in vivid detail by deep fake AI researchers at Samsung. And yes, I said AI there for you guys. <laughs> um, but uh, what's cool is that if you actually watch this video on here, they're showing how um, you know they, they take a composite of different images together to, to uh, be able to create um, a a fake, basically, version of someone talking, but by doing it with the Mona Lisa, they show they can do it with as little as one image. Now, obviously, the more images they have of people, the better it gets, But and it's cool because they show, like, hey, here's what happened if we took Neil Patrick Harris with one picture, and then we tried to make it look like he was talking and moving his face all around, and it's weird looking. Yeah, And the more pictures they get, the better it looks. Just last week, uh, there were articles out there about the threat of deepfakes, and that mm -hmm. uh, the, the technology's come so far 
that somebody could easily make a false video of you uh, based off of one picture uh, saying or doing something like uh, throwing out a bunch of racial slurs. Well, I think about then, this about elections. I mean, yeah. think about think about how many pictures we have of someone like Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, if you could make a deep fake based off those pictures that looks amazing because you have every single angle of this person and you could have him, you know, saying a speech or something that, that then people see and say, hey, did you hear him say this? So I, I can already tell you, like horrible video editing has already been used in various political campaigns, smear campaigns, to change people's viewpoints. Interestingly enough, I tend to be a very from a very polarized region. Uh, so those are propagated. And I'm like, but those are not real. You see how their inflection changes? Right. People believe those? Yeah. I suspect if oh, we'll this seems this. to be yeah. a very possible big issue in upcoming yeah. So this was the, the first time I had seen deep fakes referred to in a positive manner, like a, an actual good way to use this. Uh, and what they did is um, they took the Mona Lisa and showed us what she may have actually looked like uh, if you were to meet her. Uh, and before I bring that one up, she is rude. they took some people that we, we actually do have video footage. They took Marilyn Monroe and Salvador Dali, both of which we have actual video footage of these people. So we, we all know or we all if you've seen them, uh, you would know what they look like, uh, just to show how effective the technology is. And so if we bring up, like, uh, uh, Salvador Dali here, here's a single picture of him. And, you know, just standing there. There's a very famous photo of him with the, uh, the uh, handlebar mustache. And then they apply the deepfake technology to actually have him talking and moving. And so they take a video of somebody else who's talking and saying something, and then this one photo is laid on top of that other person, so the movements and gestures are actual human movements and gestures. It's not all jilted like the old VR stuff. Uh, and there it is. So it didn't handle his handlebar mustache, uh, unintended pun, uh, very well. But everything else, I mean, he's talking and, and looks like Salvador Dali. Uh, this is one of those things where if I didn't have the uh, static image next to it, I wouldn't have noticed the handlebar mustache discrepancy. right? I, I've seen Salvador Dali before. Yeah, but if it if was you're just looking a for the problems, your mind's going to fill in. Yeah, you, you know, got, the, I, the yeah, cool. yeah. It's pretty interesting how these go because they take the image, overlay it on someone's face, and they start training new images, and then they have another algorithm that the whole time it's going, is that image fake? Ah, it looks fake to me, and they throw those out. So over time, it gets better and better and better. Mm. Uh, generative adversarial networks. Yeah, I'm sorry, nice. to say that again. Generative adversarial networks or GANs. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know about that. Can we, can we see the Mona Lisa now? So, yeah. Yep. So, I got the Mona Lisa pulled <laughs> up here. I know we built up this in anticipation. Uh, so, they took that single photo of her and applied it to a image, and you end up with a result like this. And we actually kind of get a little idea of what – because we all know the, 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 the smirking smile mm -hmm. that she has and this one point of view, and now you get to see the other. And uh, uh, I imagine they set up uh, probably – it probably takes significant computing resources for something like this. So they're probably leveraging cloud technologies to be able to, uh, uh, you know, render all of this. And I'm trying to help Peter Bingo! out here. Bingo! <laughs> ah. I did it. And now I can actually check it. Moving from uh, the bottom here, I've got 5G, cloud, free space, blockchain, and cryptocurrency. There that was we a go. Good week for me. Sorry, go on, though. You yep. were saying something real? So, uh, uh, not really. I mean, so it's like Justin said, though. This is, is really advanced technology. It's been used for a lot of malicious purposes. We're going to see a lot of that coming up. Yeah. Uh, but this is kind of a positive aspect. It, it really adds a whole new perspective over who uh, who this this person is, whose face I think we all know. Yeah, well, I would take uh, I would suggest taking the time to actually watch this video, too, because the, the researchers that were working on it are doing the narration, so they're explaining 
those steps that they go through and, and what they throw out and what they keep and, and all that. So uh, it was actually a pretty interesting uh, watch there. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, thought, I, I thought you were going to say I, something. I, well, I do. I Sorry. I I made that as awkward as possible. You're going to so, tell us it's all crap now? Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, so all those, I actually made all those fake articles and posted them online. Weird. I knew it. I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I don't have time for that. Um, but I did look up a couple of things that interest me from today's news articles, right? Sometimes I like to, to dig a little deeper. Uh, Overstock.com still uses Bitcoin, still accepts oh. it. So I just went and added a something in the cart. I was going to buy a couch with Bitcoin. Um, and send it to Peter's house. And send it to Peter's house. And then go pick it up <laughs> you before you got home. You can watch me on my, on my FOSCAM uh, as yeah, I so can confuse. On my burner phone that yeah. I purchased also with Bitcoin. And just saw that it's still a selection. I don't know the process. I've never bought anything with Bitcoin. I, I don't really care to, honestly. Secondly, I was interested about the fines for Equifax. Mm-hmm. We, ended, we estimated over... That year, those several years, it's going to be roughly $1.8 billion. And I went, that's a lot of money. But is that a lot of money to them? <laughs> so I went and looked at their fourth quarter uh, earnings statement. So for, this is just one quarter of yeah. a year? Of last so, year? Look, yep. Okay. Fourth quarter of 2018. Want to guess? Oh, okay. Uh, so this is earnings. So this is... this is uh, Revenue. Revenue, okay. Yep. I'm going to say $2.5 billion. Negative one point eight billion. <laughs> Eight hundred and thirty-five million dollars. Right? And okay. you're like, oh well they're paying out one point eight billion, but that's over the next three years. Yeah. So if they kept that yeah. for quarters, right? They make roughly three point two billion. Now I'm I'm doing some large generalizations mm-hmm. here. That's three point two billion a year. Next three years they'll make almost ten billion dollars. Yeah, it's roughly a fifth. But they've been down. But if you now. still have eight billion dollars. Yeah. Two billion gone is all right. You know, and I guess on a positive side, it's not like they need to invest in cybersecurity since they've already had a really, really bad breach. It can't get any worse, so yeah, they can true. knock that line item off their budget. And they have that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the stuff's already on the dark web. They're just monitoring for it now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but it's interesting. Bingos with that one. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking of which, I think if you don't have bingo yet. We're about to talk to a venture capitalist, so <laughs> so it's over. Uh, no, but uh, but but Marco's a, a really good guy, so let's go ahead and bring him in. Uh, like I said, he uh, is the senior investment director with the Center for Innovation uh, Technology up in Virginia, uh, and so we're going to hear about some really cool technologies that they've uh, been able to be a part of, and and that process that they go through for uh, selecting who they work with. So let's take a look at that right after this on Technado. My name is Dana Morrison. I'm the IT director at Grace Christian School in Raleigh, North Carolina. IT directors often hoard so much knowledge that it's hard for their team members to learn. IT Pro TV has given us the ability to level up our technicians to a point where they can decide this is important for me to learn. I would recommend IT Pro TV uh, to any IT team. It's just a great tool uh, for any IT professional. All right, welcome back to TechNATO. We're joined now by our guest all the way from Northern Virginia. We have Marco Rubin, who is the Senior Investment Director at the Center for Innovative Technology, which uh, henceforth I'm just going to call CIT. Uh, That's a lot easier. (laughs) How you doing, Marco? Well, thank you. How are you guys doing? Uh, We're doing great, thank you. And so uh, for those that aren't familiar, why don't we just start by learning a little bit more about your company. So tell us what the uh, 
the Center for, well, I said I was going to just say CIT from now <laughs> on. So tell, tell, tell us what that's all about. Sure. The part of the organization at CIT I work for is the investment team. Uh, Center for Innovative Technology is a private company with taxpayer money. We invest uh, equity capital into startups throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. Be eligible, you have to be based here. But uh, beyond that, uh, we look for high growth, high expectation companies in a variety of sectors, aerospace, life sciences, energy, software. And we have a big cybersecurity accelerator. Uh, and so the, the, the group that I'm involved with is uh, we've been making investments together as a, uh, as a team since 2003. And uh, I think we are now, uh, CB Insights uh, has, has acknowledged us as the uh, most active investor in, in Washington, D.C. area and Virginia in general and, and mid-Atlantic. So we're excited about that. Uh, and maybe the perspective I can bring to you is kind of uh, seeing different uh verticals and different types of entrepreneurs that have technology in their their story. And, and those are the kind of uh, companies that we get behind. Yeah, I know we, we've talked to a few companies recently that are from Maryland, Northern Virginia, D.C., that, that whole area. And with uh, with kind of all the, the government tech uh, up there, it spawns a lot of, uh, of cool, innovative uh, companies as well. And I, and I see the uh, the rocket behind you. So we'll definitely get into that stuff. Uh, I want to talk about that. But um, first, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. I think you, you were actually with, with NASA originally, right? But before you kind of got into the uh, the equity side of things? Uh, yeah, I had started out. I had hoped to be an astronaut. I was a uh, an astronaut trainer, which uh, basically means I was part of a team that certified astronauts and flight controllers to uh, operate spacecraft. And uh, the, the punchline there was uh, three years of that in a very exciting time frame. Uh, became clear that I was not exactly what you call the right stuff. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it also was clear to me that I enjoyed uh, small organizations, more nimble organizations, and, and I thrived in that environment. And uh, through a whole series of uh, fortunate events for me, I, I got involved in corporate venturing, and then after that as a venture capitalist. And now as an institutional seed investor, so uh, starting from small to medium uh, to large uh, uh, companies is uh, the usual path that most investors take. I've done just the opposite. I've start, started with very large checks, worked to medium size, and now uh, small checks. So uh, that's what we do here at CIT. We, we lot, write a lot of uh, uh, seed and early stage uh, uh, checks in uh, the high growth, high expectation area that you would expect a venture investor to be involved with. So I've always been interested. You, you just said I, I wanted to be an astronaut, and then I became a venture capitalist. It's a fairly <laughs> large jump in my But How does that happen? Like, you just go, oh, look, I found a pile of money. I wonder what I can do with it. Or how do you go about doing that? <laughs> Selling moon rocks. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, so after uh, I, I left uh, NASA Johnson Space Center uh, one month before Challenger accident, and uh, it was fortuitous timing for me. Uh, a retiring uh, astronaut, uh, a gentleman named uh, Dr. Bill Lenore, recruited me and said, uh, let's uh, uh, get into commercial space. And that started in 1980, end of 85 into 86. And uh, that started an 11-year aerospace uh, engineering and consulting uh, experience. And from there, a large firm called Booz Allen, uh, I, I then uh, was recruited into MCI to run their corporate venturing group. And quite frankly, that was a total accident. I, I simply uh, uh, was asked to provide them with uh, a way to go about doing venture capital by the organization. I uh, 
I wrote a proposal for them, and uh, to my horror, they said, like the proposal, you're going to run it. And uh, after one one or two weeks of not having any sleep, I, I, I was the guy doing uh, corporate venture investing for a Fortune 500 company in the mid-90s. So think uh, the height of the dot-com era, and, 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 a, and I would argue a, a pretty clear bubble in history. Uh, and, and, and we took our winnings off the table, and uh, I joined uh, several other uh, people who were co-investing with me at MCI, and we formed a venture capital group. So, so it was just a series of uh, fortunate events. Uh, it was just being at the right place at the right time. And um, yeah, and, I, and I've thrived in small organizations. So <laughs> I, I couldn't say it was a planned path. It was completely a series of just opportunities that availed themselves throughout the time. So I, you know, there you have it. So yeah, it's, it's not a logical trajectory. So, so I'm curious, Marco. You mentioned um, that there is uh, is state funding uh, involved in this. So, does that make things a little bit different? Uh, I mean, in most cases, uh, I'm used to kind of hearing about equity where they're uh, where they're taking a, a stake in a, in, a, in a company. Are you doing that as well, or is this more like a grant? Or how how does this arrangement work? Uh, we are equity investors, and it is public taxpayer money. Uh, we invest on behalf of the Commonwealth, so uh, taxpayers in the state uh, are, are, are backers of us. I, I view them as our largest limited partner, not our only one, but our largest and, and primary source of capital for us. Uh, so you raise an interesting point. Uh, yes, because it is public money, it's, it's a little different than having other people's money as investors. Uh, we have, while we're looking for very high growth companies, and at the end of the day, there's an economic development motive, we, we are looking to back the very best companies we can find. And, and our, our, our reasoning is uh, if we can back find those and back those, uh, it, there's a virtuous cycle. We, we, we not only look for exits, of course, but in the course of creating a really good property, uh, the best uh, way to see how well you're doing is to see if other investors join along in, in the co-investment process. So in other words, uh, will other people, other investors, whether it's venture capitalists or angel investors, uh, write their own checks alongside us as part of a syndication. And so for our, our small fund, uh, we've, we've attracted almost a uh, billion dollars of third-party co-investment. So essentially that's people voting with their checkbooks saying we like the deals that are being back and created here. So uh, what we look for really is special kinds of entrepreneurs uh, who, who have uh, a mentality for entrepreneurship uh, we're looking for very big growth markets. We're, we're looking for some, as, as you'd suggested in the name of, of my organization, Center for Innovative Technology, we are looking for innovative technology. Uh, so we don't have to split atoms, but we are looking for some boundary pushing. Uh, we're looking for uh, the, the amount of capital it takes to, to take this company to the next level. You know, can we be a material participant as a small investor? And, uh, and, and, and then you know, ultimately we're asking ourselves the question, Will, will this sort of investment create an economic outcome for the Commonwealth? So we're looking for return. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, there's an economic development motive, which is, hey, if you, you create an exit in the company, those people then become angels in their own right, and that creates a flywheel effect in the ecosystem. I hope that makes sense. So there's a virtuous process in the whole cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was actually looking forward to this interview because I had a, a question specifically for somebody like you that I've been wanting to ask for about a year now. Uh, we go out to the RSA conference, and that, it's a big security conference. You mentioned that, that cybersecurity is one of the spaces you guys operate in. And each year we, we swing by the, the startup pavilion, whatever, I forget what it's actually called, uh, where they have all the, the startup companies that are usually just one or two people in a very, very tiny booth. Like, it's not even really a booth, just a 
lean to. Two foot square desk <laughs> or something. To lean to. And you hear all these these great ideas for products and and some of them look really promising. Most of them you look at and say, man, I I doubt they're gonna be here next year. It seems like a really volatile market right now. Cybersecurity is changing so fast. So I'm I'm curious for, for you, you know, you mentioned the, the various things you're looking for in companies, but when you're talking about seed funding that early, it's it's got to be near impossible to tell whether a company is going to be successful or not. Uh, how how has your success rate been? Hey, have you have you had any big winners we would have heard of, or uh, has it just been super volatile? Uh, well, it's it, it's it's all of those things. Um, yeah, we've had some big winners. Uh, we've had uh, private exits. Uh, we have had some a handful of small IPOs. Uh, IPOs are pretty rare, mathematically speaking. Uh, and, and just to give you a, a, a sense, most of the exits that we have tend to be trade sales acquisitions by, by either public or private companies. That that was also true in my life as a VC, and it was also true uh, at MCI New Ventures. Uh, so, you know, to, to, to take a step back, you're asking a really profound question, which is this, that is absolutely true. It's an inherently very risky uh, proposition to get involved uh, in this asset class. Uh, one of the terms people use is that uh, this is the kind of investment uh, that 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 people uh, have to be accredited investors. Meaning, there's there's an SEC definition of what it means to 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 be that. And uh, this is the kind of money that can create outsized returns, but also there is an inherently high uh, risk profile. So you're exactly correct. Uh, to give you a sense of the duration, uh, angel investors. Well, let me start off with venture capitalists. Venture capitalists have 10-year fund life. So uh, the expectation is a VC will make an investment and, and hopefully get out within that 10-year period of time. If we're talking about software, it's not unusual to see a three- to five-year expectation. If it's something involving chemistry or metal bending, it's going to be on the longer side of that time horizon. But then throw on top of that the angel investor who usually comes in before the VC uh, and that may be several years before the venture capitalists come in. So, so kind of the mental model to think about is an extremely long runway uh, relationship in company building, and we get deeply involved with these companies. So, you ask a very good question about how do we how do we uh, how do we identify the companies we want to back? And uh, I don't think there's any silver bullet except to say that it is uh, a very diligent and rigorous process. I mean, there's some data to show that the best types of investors. Are not necessarily gut checkers or profilers, but they're people who uh, are more disciplined and behave more like uh, airline pilots, more more methodical, more rigorous. And that's what we do here. We're very structured. We have an investment committee process that acts as a check and balance to the investment team. And, and, and so when people go through our process, uh, it, it may seem heavy-handed, but what comes out of it is a lot of learnings, both for us, but also for the entrepreneur. Uh, so. The way to think about uh, uh, it, it getting a relationship with us and going through our process is we, all, we, we, do, we can make investments quickly, but we've discovered that uh, more rigorous diligence, slower methodical reviews of the company, try to understand a sector. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's an imperfect process, but we look at companies from as many angles as we can. We bring in third parties. Our investment committees for each one of those funds I mentioned earlier, we have VCs from those sectors represent uh, us at the table. We have uh, exited entrepreneurs. We have some corporates in there. And the whole point is to act as a check and balance to uh, the investor uh, who is bringing the deal in. So if I'm, I'm excited about a deal, uh, it's their responsibility to, to bring a broader perspective and a check and balance to our view. 
and it, it, out comes a very uh, kind of well understood set of you know unknown unknowns and known unknowns. And what are the types of risks that we think we can accept, and what are the ones that we can't? And uh, we, we we sort out our investments that way. So it, it, the mental model with us is it, it, it's very diligent, very thoughtful process, and Maybe uh, one last punchline in all of this is that we do provide a lot of feedback to entrepreneurs. Uh, there's a disincentive for professional investors to do that because if imagine uh, you, you're managing other people's money, uh, you really are as a, a pure return on investment investor. You're, you're you're paid not to provide feedback, but you're paid to find the best deals and get get, get great outsized returns. We, on the other hand, because we are public money and we believe in ecosystem building. You know, we, we provide people feedback when we think they ought to do tweaks or wholesale changes, and uh, sometimes that's well-received. Uh, often it's very well-received because there's just not an incentive to systematically do that, and that's that's where we live. So we've been talking about this being a little different model because it is public money, uh, and you said there's economic development in mind when you're investing in these companies. And, you know, some of the, the kind of markets that you've talked about, life sciences, chemistry, uh, various security firms, pretty widespread. However, you talked about risk. How does that play into the economic development or if the Commonwealth of Virginia has a say in this? Like, do they go, hold on, hold on. I know there's a possible big payout, but it's our money. Do, are they part of that board? And if so, how do they manage that risk with like, the outcomes for economic development? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So economic development, and it may be to, to break it up into pieces, when I think of economic development, I think of the uh, one of the derived outcomes of what we do is that when there's an exit or jobs created, that's an outgrowth of the investment. So think about it this way. We look at investment just like any other investor does. We're looking for an economically sustainable, viable company, right? If the company is not going to be sustainable or we don't see how that can happen, uh, it does no one any good if uh, there are jobs created temporarily and the, and the company uh, disappears. So we're looking for an argument that says, hey, uh, when will this company reach some sort of uh, break-even point? Uh, what sort of capital requirements are going forward? So we don't lead with, hey, how many jobs are being created uh, day one? It's, it's an impossible thesis to, to get behind. So we, we still obey what I call the laws of business physics. It has to be a good business deal. And then from good business deals, and think about creating a portfolio, it's, it's inevitably true that when you're at this stage of investing, you're going to have a lot of flame outs. But you're also, and, and that's part and parcel of the risk, to your point. There's a lot of tech risk. There's a lot of management risk, some frontier market risk. Uh, and in fact, your point about chemistry versus uh, some regulated markets versus unregulated markets, that's another level of risk. Uh, and the amount of capital it takes to vaccinate. Some of, some of these ventures are uh, capital efficient. Others require a whole ton of money. Uh, so you know that that whole risk profile fits fits into our thinking, but we don't lead with job creation per se. But we do know that what we end up when we end up having companies that have outcomes, uh, guess what? Not only have those uh, successful companies created high growth, high value jobs, but then those people go on to their next ventures, either as next generation entrepreneurs, repeat entrepreneurs, uh, wealthy angels, etc. So, uh, and there's a pretty measurable uh, effect of that. So the way to think about it is just, even though we have public money, we still look at deals with the intention of creating economics. But there is one major distinction. 
part of our mission is to drive catalytic growth. And by that, we, we do take risks in, in different geographies in the state that might ordinarily not see capital. We take risks with uh, women and uh, uh, minority entrepreneurs and veterans who uh, the capital markets have often overlooked. We've created a fund especially for uh, those types of entrepreneurs who still fit that profile of high growth, high expectations, but we're giving them a leg up that says, hey, yeah, you know, we know uh, it may be harder to get capital in a, a smaller tier city, uh, and we're going to take a risk, and we're going to put a little uh, investment on the table with the understanding that we still have an expectation this company will be pushing boundaries. So we, we're a little unusual. We do accept a lot of risk, uh, but we aren't, we aren't uh, investing uh, retiree pension money per se. So, you know, I'd like to make that distinction that we have a very specific mission to get really early into a company's life cycle, be deeply participatory. But we, you, you raise a great point. We do accept a lot of risk. And because we have a wide aperture, meaning, you know, we look at life sciences, energy, aerospace, cyber, those are all very different animals. And because we look at all of that tech, they each have different forms of risk, stage risk. So imagine if you're doing a battery chemistry, that or bending metal is gonna be very, very different than changing ones and zeros. So, you know, we, we step up to a lot of innovation risk that I would say most investors don't ordinarily do. And I think it's just a byproduct of the, the mission that we have as an organization. So think of us as an impact investor, first and foremost, go for return, but we, we, we clearly have uh, a, 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 an objective to drive economic growth for the Commonwealth. So know, let, let's talk about let's talk about some of those other areas that you mentioned because you know I, I'm a tech guy. Cybersecurity is something I can wrap my head around. That's a, a business model that we interact with quite a bit. Uh, but you guys have aerospace. You mentioned a, a couple of other areas. I mean, that's to me the it seems like the, you mentioned small check, but if you're putting something into space, that seems like really big check <laughs> to me. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those projects because that is a pretty exciting area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it. it Actually, but and, and given my aerospace background, and and and, and uh, there are others on the team who who, who share this enthusiasm for the sector, uh, the timing is ripe in in the space and aerospace market for uh, uh, earlier stage investors. I mean, what's what's gotten news headlines are are Bezos and Musk and others, uh, very wealthy, high net worth individuals who uh, can drive uh, outsized capital intensive sort of ventures, both through their own pockets and uh, the credibility of their names. But there's been an evolution, for example, in uh, small sats. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar or not, but there is a, uh, a huge revolution going on with low Earth orbiting satellites. These are very low cost uh, uh, satellites that are, are, are made possible now. Uh, we're seeing, for example, CubeSats, ThinSats, CardSats. We have satellites, you know, the size of you know my my, my cell phone, and uh, the the cost of launching these uh, uh, the, the weight and volume been dropping. There's a new class of launchers. Uh, you know, clearly have seen uh, the Falcon vehicle. There are also clever innovations on more efficiently packing this. And the way you want to think about this, I believe, or at least the way I think about it is, it's not unlike the mainframe PC uh, revolution now to mobile devices. You used to have a lot of big iron, low Earth orbiting, uh, pardon me, uh, space station is low Earth orbiting, but uh, geosynchronous satellites, uh, TV, uh, TV uh, satellites were very expensive propositions to go into geosynchronous orbit, super expensive to get out of that uh, Earth's gravity well. Now we have, think of it, if those are the mainframes of the day, we now have 
again, back to these card sets, small sets, uh, one of our portfolio companies uh, just recently uh, had their second successful launch of a uh, small set that is the uh, first uh, base station, cellular base station in low Earth orbit. And that just basically means uh, your camping trips are ruined forever, guys. And hate, <laughs> I hate to say it, but that means that you'll be able to get narrowband messaging anywhere in the world uh, at, without any uh, unique hardware or software. You can use your existing phone to actually talk to a low Earth orbiting satellite and do text messaging where the cellular network does not exist. So 10 years ago, that wasn't possible. Uh, the market's right now. And uh, so it, it is a white hot area right now to get broadband and narrowband uh, into low Earth orbiting satellite, mid Earth orbits as well. Uh, and you know, to circle back to one of the other points that we didn't talk about earlier, you know, if you go to RSA and you look at a mature industry, uh, I, I went to RSA last year and I think what, there were 55,000 or so people there. And if you go into the vendor areas, you guys pointed out, Good grief! You're right. Uh, how many, how many hundreds, if not thousands, of vendors are there, all fighting for attention? And uh, I, I continue to be very enthusiastic about cyber, but it is getting to be mature in a lot of areas. And uh, if you look at any particular part of cyber value chain, endpoint security, you'll see what used to be a handful of logos now be hundreds of logos uh, representing companies, vendors that are serving that area. And that's fine. That's just simply indicative of a maturing, evolving market. And there are plenty of opportunities there. Uh, I, I just see that uh, in, a, in a sector like this that's emerging, it's exciting because there's an opportunity to be uh, an early entrant in the market space. But with that also comes, as you might imagine, uh, some of the early first mover risks. So uh, yeah, you know, there are trade-offs. Uh, you know, you get into a market too early, sometimes the market doesn't materialize and uh, you know, we don't get it right uh, all the time uh, and nor do entrepreneurs. But uh, it, it, it's, it's a way of pushing boundaries and I, I, I reasonably pushing boundaries. Uh, so yeah, I, I think to answer your question, that's how a small investor can now access what used to be inaccessible from a small paycheck or small check perspective. If you're an after-tax investor, uh, uh, now is a good time to be considering uh, this sort of asset class. It was out of reach, uh, you know, again, just 10 years ago. Well, the, the, the ruined camping trip brought up a very interesting point for me uh, because, you know, when I go camping, I think about throwing my phone at the nearest lake that there is. <laughs> well, I still get cell phone reception with these small, uh, low-Earth uh, satellites. Y in yeah, the yes. Yeah, in the lake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't. Well, if, if it's released your hand and it's underwater, I think you're, you're going to pay a, a visit to your iPhone dealer. So, uh Yes, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, there are a, a variety of constellations coming out now. Uh, there are uh, uh, some that are voice. Uh, the, the example I talked about, at least the current version, is uh, a, a text message-based narrowband format. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so uh, it automatically uh, detects when you're uh, out of range from uh, a cellular network, and it looks for, uh, it senses for, a signal that it can acquire, and if you're within range of that satellite, uh, you'll be able to do a storm forward and, and burst it up. Uh, as more satellites get added to a constellation, uh, you will have uh, near, if not full-time, uh, coverage. So the way you want to think about designing an orbit, it's almost like you design an orbit to where you want your coverage to be. Uh, so if you're camping uh, you and you're off uh, the grid and you're away from a cell tower, 
uh, you will now be able to uh, get connectivity with uh, a, a satellite. And again, I just use the example of low Earth orbiting. There, there are higher orbiting uh, constellations as well. But you know, some will be narrowband, some will be broadband. And when I say broadband, I, I mean the ability to do uh, voice, data, text, video, the whole multitude of uh, applications that you would have in a, in a bandwidth-rich environment that you have in an urban center. So uh, yeah, think about 911. Wouldn't it be nice if uh, you're, you're caught in a tough situation that you can now send a, an SOS uh, in, in, in an emergency situation? Uh, and so I, I, I was being a little glib saying that we're gonna ruin your vacation. Uh, the other way to think about it is, uh, this is also an opportunity to know that if, if you have uh, uh, whatever happened out in the woods, you can uh, send out an SOS uh, E911 message and, and get help. Now, you mentioned early mover risk, right? So if you get into a, a market that is emerging, some, something that's, that's brand new, there's there's always some risk. And this is super timely because just yesterday, Engadget had an article out about uh, SpaceX's Starlink satellites, which are, are kind of what you're describing. It's Elon Musk's effort. Uh, I guess they launched, shoot, I forget how many, um, 3,600 satellites or something so far. Oh, wow. uh, but their plan is 12,000 total of these these micro satellites or, or whatever you want to call them uh, that are supposed to provide internet access across the globe. Well, it's a great plan. You know, you can get internet access to people in rural areas and uh, countries that wouldn't normally have that type of access. So, so that's the positive side of it. But now the, the controversy is starting to, to emerge, right? So uh, astronomers, uh, a lot of uh, amateur and professional astronomers are saying that the satellites are blocking their view or shining light back at them. That was what the Engadget article was talking about. Uh, other people have talked about there was a, an art exhibit that's basically an advertisement that's a low-orbit satellite that'll be visible with the naked eye. Uh, so I, there's a little bit of controversy starting, and that, that type of thing could snowball until it becomes government regulation. And all of a sudden, these projects get sidetracked or delayed or, or whatever. So for you as as a as a, an investor, is that a is that a risk that you're able to calculate or is that just part of the chance you take when you're when you're an early mover, when you're getting in there in the in the very beginning? Yeah. So uh attempting to predict uh the, the an outcome is pretty difficult. The longer your prediction horizon, you might imagine that the, the the more likely you're gonna have an error, the shorter your prediction horizon. Just like predicting the stock market movement, it's it's the same sort of thing. The shorter your horizon, uh, the, the more likely you're going to get uh, 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 closer to the high and low that you expect. Uh, yeah, you raise an interesting point about risk. Uh, so, and, and just uh, to be clear, as, as as far as I know, there already is regulatory risk in commercial space. So, for example, uh, it, it starts with the launch vehicle. Uh, the uh, FCC gets involved with spectrum usage. Uh, they're, they're they're pretty clear. Uh, guidelines uh, about that. Uh, there was one constellation uh, called Swarm. I think they got in a little bit of trouble, and and, and I'm I'm not sure where they uh, have left things with the regulatory process. Oh, I, I remember that they, they didn't file their paperwork, but they launched the satellites anyway, and so they they got hit pretty hard. But I guess they worked it out. They paid I don't know fifty bucks in fines or something like that, and it's all <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, so there they, they, there, there there appears to be a cure. And you're also raising an interesting point about orbital debris and unintended consequences of uh, com the complexity involved in tracking uh, a, a lot of both uh, assets that you want to track that are just debris and uh, deliberate man-made devices that are part of an active constellation. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I have not done thorough analysis 
there are a, a lot of smart people who are thinking about uh, traffic management, collision avoidance, uh, interference with uh, other, uh, uh, not just communication systems, but you know, you bring up a point about uh, you know telescope payloads and Earth observation. Uh, I think there will be uh, international regulatory uh, guidelines expanding in this area. So you take what uh, the examples you just made and multiply that by the number of constellations that are likely to have happened by other sovereign uh, nations. Uh, we're 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 going to get a lot of traffic uh, very quickly. Uh, so you know, we're going to have international bodies, uh, uh, both on the radio side, on the spectrum management side, on the orbital debris, and then these multidisciplinary examples. I mean, I think there's going to be a, a bunch of unintended consequences of different uh, payload types uh, flying around. So you know how that's going to play out, I don't know. Uh, the good news is if you're in low Earth orbit, sooner or later, run out of propellant. <laughs> so uh, there is the orbital decay, and uh, eventually it will become uh, a, an object to burn in the atmosphere. Uh, it's it, so if, if if you park a satellite in a geosynchronous orbit, that's a stationary orbit. So anything below that uh, are more energetic orbits, and and sooner or later end up uh, here on uh, planet Earth. Low Earth orbiting small sats, they'll they'll burn up pretty easily. But there are legitimate concerns about an overabundance of uh, 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 essentially constellations. And uh, but I, I think it's all manageable. I don't think these are showstoppers, these are in the realm of what I would call solvable regulatory problems. And yes, there is there is the potential for regulatory risk here that we haven't anticipated yet. Well, I'm glad to hear the process that goes into this because I always assumed it was just a magic eight ball. Uh, and that's how you selected uh, where to invest. But so let's say uh, I, I live in Virginia and I have a drone that uh, spits out uh, microsatellites. How would I go about uh, getting in touch with you to, uh, to get a check? Uh, well, so minimum eligibility, you, you need to be based in Virginia. So uh, uh, assuming that's the case uh, and assuming you, you believe that your company is uh, uh, poised to go down this path that we just described earlier in the podcast, the way to contact me is uh, well, a couple of ways. Always call me uh, or uh, you can certainly email me at uh, marco.rubin at cit.org. Uh, we're always looking for innovators, entrepreneurs, and, and by the way, if it's not a fit for us, for whatever reason, there are other uh, mechanisms that we look for. Sometimes companies need more time or resources to bake. Uh, we have, on the other side of the organization, uh, a grant program called CRCF, and that's Commonwealth Research Commercialization Fund. These are 50K grants. Uh, and uh, unlike the equity side that uh, has a, a very different criteria, this is a um, uh, uh, once a year, as I understand it, uh, selection process where they nail up search areas and uh, the CIT and panels uh, reviewers to look at that. So my, my point in saying that is that uh, we also we also coach people too. So in addition to being, uh, I want to say, uh, good stewards of money, we, we, we also try to connect people to the right sources of capital. For example, the National Science Foundation and NASA are now working together as I understand it, uh, to do this sort of fast pitch format uh, to get to a kind of an accelerated uh, uh, phase one, phase two SBIR grant process. Uh, it's mumbo jumbo, but it basically means it's a very substantial grant program for exceptionally high risk evolutionary kind of research stage projects. So uh, I guess I, one, of the, one of the areas we can be helpful is to help vector people to the right places, depending upon where they are in the stage of their concept development.
We also see that in a lot of university research too. We see guys who, who uh, men and women who are, are, are pushing uh, boundaries and uh, there are instances where the capital markets make sense. There are a lot of instances where it doesn't. And um, you know, one of the questions we often ask ourselves is, hey, are you building a lifestyle company or are you building a high growth, high expectation company? If you're doing the latter, uh, we're, we're super interested to talk to you. If you're not sure, let's have a conversation and see if we can be helpful in factoring you one way or the other. Well, that sounds good. I will uh, get my uh, paperwork together and run a U-Haul and, and move <laughs> up to, uh, to Virginia there. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And uh, hopefully we can reach out again if you, uh, if you come across any cool investments and new things you, you want to tell us about. We'd love to have you on again. Does that sound good? Uh I, I certainly would like to do so. Uh, check back in soon. I've got a couple of super cool things in the cauldron here, so I'd love to talk about it. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Marco, for joining us, and thank you all for watching. But stay tuned because we've got more Technado coming up right after this. I'm James Packer. I'm the General Manager of Kirk ISS based in the Cayman Islands. I used IT Pro TV extensively in my last place. It grew very well, helped upskill the team. I had 110 engineers in the field and we had dozens of IT Pro accounts with the guys training and last year alone they passed over 40 certs by using the online training. I think I can safely say um, without IT Pro TV I wouldn't be where I was today because I only got this job on the back of the qualifications I have. All right, welcome back to Technado. That was a, that was a cool interview. I, uh, you know, it was cool to see all the, the, the drones and things uh, you had. Uh, you talked about it. We we already got that. You got you I checked that off. Just, yeah. I'm making sure. Did that, did that get you bingo? No, it no. didn't. It All didn't. Right. We didn't. We didn't really talk about the rocket behind him though. I I forgot to oh, dig yeah. into that. Oh yeah. Well, the satellites. They yeah, I go know. Up but somehow, right? But but the, <laughs> but after you're talking about how small those satellites are, I'm like, so so that rocket might actually be real. Yeah. So <laughs> shoot off like ten of them in that. So I I got really distracted there. For I was like, those are small. He's saying constellation. All I could think of was mesh Wi-Fi networking in your house, but at an orbital level. That's that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, effectively yeah. what it is. That, does that mean? Because I know. I mean, you have to file plans and stuff. You can launch a GoPro like from your backyard yeah. in into a weather space. balloon yeah. into like low orbit, yeah. and then it'll fall back down. Could we launch satellites yeah. ourselves? So in in space right now, I mean, there's it's a bunch of Linksys routers with the two little antennas <laughs> that are just, I mean, in synchronous orbit. It's it's how impressive. Do, how do they patch them? <laughs> they, they don't, don't. But they do have to reboot them every so uh, often. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> so. they have a little paper clip that they shoot up. <laughs> it's actually low orbit botnet. Is what it is. <laughs> Pushes that little thing. No, that's fun. Uh, that's a good yeah. time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm gonna, like I said, put together my business plan, and we'll get uh, we'll get that drone uh, spitting satellite. Uh, we'll get that off the ground. I'm not sure what we'll do. Or satellite that. spitting drone. Is there is there um, is there like you know 4G 5G coverage on the uh, on the oceans now? Because when I be. go on a cruise. That's a lot of money if you want to use the internet. That'd there will be, nice. be once these satellites go. Yeah. There'll still be a lot of money, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, it'll, it'll come down over time. By the time I'm I'm 80, it'll be really cheap to uh, access the internet from my there cruise you ship. Go. All right, uh, got a couple things to let you know about before uh, we go, and this is not one of the normal ones. First, I wanted to let you know we have Live Week coming up, um, and that's uh, one of the things we do here at IT Pro TV is we uh, we record live every day, and you can actually uh, watch and see what we're doing in the studios if you have uh, just even just a free membership. Uh, to IT Pro TV. So we're going to do a live week where we showcase some of that stuff. We've got interviews, challenges, prizes. I think Justin's going to be a game show host. 
Yep. For one of those. Yeah, I got to find a horrible comb over toupee. I hope you use the long mic like the Bob Barker. Ah, we don't have one of those. Oh, do we you? certainly do. Do we? Yeah, well, we have the old uh, mics that we use. Oh, on the yeah, desks. we did. We could just we turn did. that into it. Yeah, yeah, we definitely have to yeah, use that. We can do that. Um, but yeah, we'll have five days of uh, programming. Uh, it's June 17th through 21st, 2019. You can check out the whole schedule over at go.itpro.tv slash live week. Uh, and Don, you'll be, you'll be doing a lot of that too, right? Yeah, I've got a number of interviews that are going on. I've got a game show. We're doing Iron Tech. Oh, cool. We're like yeah, Iron we're Chef. Talk to Leo Laporte is doing mm-hmm. an interview. Uh, I've got I'm actually a contestant on that game show. Yep. yep. Ooh, gotta start studying. Um, all right. Uh, also, <laughs> also want to let you know about a webinar coming up. We've got one coming up uh, next week. Uh, it's Thursday, June 6th. PowerShell to the people, where uh, Mike and uh, Cherokee are going to talk about everything IT pros need to know about PowerShell. They are our Microsoft experts there. And, uh, you can head over, head over to itpro.tv slash webinars to register for that. Uh, you can also see all of our past webinars um, there and uh, you can get the or you can access the recordings for those like our our pen testing webinar um, different ones like that you had pen test you don't have I spent week? like the last month trying to get you to say pen test well, and the, the, the time it's not on my car it's not on my car Perfect. Either, yeah. well I got it you said it you, said you already it back to me. won I know but I'm seeing if I can get two all right uh, <laughs> And last but not least, I uh, want to let you know uh, to head over to go.itpro.tv slash technado, uh, and there you can find out all about signing up for an IT Pro TV membership. Uh, we've got a 30, 30% off uh, promo code for you uh, for your personal membership. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about your business plans, um, we've got uh, a link to a demo there, so you can check that out at go.itpro.tv slash technado. All right, guys. Well, uh no, you got you got a lot of check marks. There. Yeah, I mean, if we'd have played what are you kind of blackout, then I would have won. We'll go ahead and call the game here. But uh, what are you missing? Microservice. Microservice. That would have done it for you. Uh, too, right? mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking that. Let's see. Where am I? Uh, oh, the X closest, is a service. You had this. Oh, did you? We not. Say, how do we not say ROI so, in an interview with a venture capitalist? Or actionable. Or actionable. Yeah, I, I'm disappointed. I know. <laughs> synergy. Did he say synergy? No. no. And that's another one that no. I. Uh, it's yeah. Why did we have him we on? Failed. <laughs> we failed. We <laughs> failed. No, but uh, he was great, and thank you for having him, and, and definitely play along with us next week. Um, but for now, we're gonna go ahead. Are we, are we done? Got anything else to say? If we wait long enough, more news will happen. Anything actionable? <laughs> any updates <laughs> in any other articles? All right, no, nothing. So thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week right here on Technado. <laughs>